Welcome to With Intent, a podcast from IIT Institute of Design about how design permeates our world, whether we call it design or not. I'm Kristen Geegan. This week, I talked to Michaela Magas. Michaela's titles go on and on. Innovation to the European Commission and G7 leaders, EU Woman Innovator of the Year, creator of the Industry Commons, founder and CEO of MTF, which stands for Music Tech Fest. Our conversation here was recorded at this year's MTF, which took place a few weeks ago in Portugal and in satellites around the world, including at ID. But what's important across all Michaela's work is not her career path. It's her continued focus on bringing people together to make deliberate decisions about the future. Those decisions may reside in the realm of intellectual property, as in the industry commons, or music technology, as in the case of MTF. MTF, for example, was born out of a specific attempt to open up the interdisciplinary science of music information retrieval to cultural, social, and creative studies. People in the field of music information retrieval explore things like algorithmic composition, But today, MTF is an organization of more than 8,000 innovators from across disciplines. It reaches far beyond the small yet growing field it originated in. After a week of hands-on collaborative prototyping, these innovators walk away from MTF with new partners and substantial development of innovative ideas and research, new offerings and platforms, prepared to drive music technology and adjacent fields ever forward, even revealing new and extraordinary human capabilities. This was the case of a classically trained singer. The singer, who was visually impaired, was hooked up to a neural feedback device with which she was able to create music through her brain waves alone. Other operators of this technology usually require hours and hours of training. Michaela has explained the significance of this event, liking it to the relationship between a race car and driver. The world's greatest race car driver wouldn't exist without the technology that made the race car itself possible. As such, Michaela believes that technology should be a form of human empowerment. Music, as Michaela says, is the glue that brings MTF participants together. But so, as we'll see, is design. Collaboratively written, yet brief and simple, a manifesto serves as the foundation for the MTF community. That manifesto reads, We are music technologists. We work in science, art, engineering, humanities, activism, social science, policy, and industry. We believe in music technology, and we want to build better worlds. We invite you to join us. It could have, and might partially have been, written by designers. But when Michaela founded MTF almost 10 years ago, before the manifesto was penned, she received little encouragement. No one thought people with these disparate specializations, from the rigor of science to the chaos of art, could successfully work together. Nevertheless, as we say here in the States, she persisted. I was told point blank that this was impossible, that people spoke completely different languages, that the music industry was getting tremendously bored by scientists trying to explain to them what music data can do, that scientists had real trouble with artists because artists were very sort of chaotic in their approach. You know, there were all those wonderful prejudices and preconceptions, and I said, no, no. I said, let me try, because I had done that with students before in design. Because design is such a wonderful, welcoming discipline, we work across different fields. I could see how this worked and how this was possible. So I literally used 
the classic principles from design education to bring these disparate groups of people together. And whenever you speak to any designer, I mean, you know, music is always a major inspiration, but when you speak to scientists, it is too. And so I observed that that, that element is also a wonderful glue. You know, the moment that we, we started to feed policy at high level from the learnings that, that we were seeing on the ground, from the grassroots experimentation, from, from these kind of optimized environments, we decided to run, to apply for funding to run a few enabling mechanisms and a few pilots. It was clear that we could evolve and scale this to the industry level. So when we did, when, I, when we went into that direction, of course it required the same approach. It required a manifesto, it required the inclusion of these grassroots community principles. And we have literally managed you know, to not only get their attention, but actually get industry on board in this way. So what are some of those techniques or, you know, what is, what is the kind of the magic that you're bringing to the table here that allows people to collaborate so well? One thing is, there's an element of curation. So there's always a need in these environments. First of all, we're building ecosystems. So they tend to be um, they're never in complete balance, otherwise they wouldn't be dynamic. And therefore you will always have, uh, you will always be slightly adjusting and pouring another bit into the mix. And, and you have for that purpose bridges, orchestrators, facilitators, you have people who are experienced in connecting people, you have people who are, I mean, I, I usually tend to kind of scan the landscape and see you know, what kind of chemistry can we create in the room. I never push people in particular directions. It's very similar to curation. You look for the kind of quality of a person that not only brings their knowledge on board, but that also has an open mind in the sense that they recognize the excellence in someone else. Um, so this is, a, this is as far as sort of the human factor. I mean, it, it starts from the people. Then in terms of how um, you give them the tools to evolve. If you put excellent tools in excellent people's hands, magic things happen, right? So they have other people to collaborate with, uh, they're inspired by each other, then you put this extra element which is a fantastic new invention or a piece of technology or a tool that allows them completely new affordances. So the first thing we did was, for instance, back in 2015 was something called Music Bricks. And they were, um, it was a music tech toolkit. And we assembled it um, from a series of really, truly excellent institutions that developed these things in academic and research environments. Um, but they had never left those environments. You know, they were, they were there, they were written up in papers. And so we created this music bricks toolkit and it just went crazy. I mean, we, we, uh, the, the pilot was supposed to create one or two kind of products out of that. And it, came up with 11. I ended up with an opposite problem. Like when you, when you create a tool uh, or a concept that is a huge enabler, you end up with the opposite problem of, of trying to get funding. For instance, we hit 5 million on social and we had absolutely zero budget for marketing. And we had no, no one to take care of social, you know? So we ended up with this opposite problem. So I ended up on, the, on a campaign to raise further cash. I had to actually go around and I raised two thirds more funding private funding on top of the public funding that we had in order to just to be able to sustain the environment that was growing so much. 
I can tell you that for fact, in Europe that's really hard to do. Um, because European companies are used to public funding, pu funding these things, and they don't—they're not used to themselves kind of offering their funding. But what uh, was a winner for us was that all those big companies that supported us, for instance, one of them was Philips, they actually saw the potential of integrating their tools into their toolkit. So all of a sudden, I'm faced with a complete opposite a problem of having to actually reject industry's IP, whereas you know people are kind of like. Usually they really struggle to get industry IP because they will just simply not part with it or they will not give it for free experimentation. I had the opposite. I had to reject some because I said, well, unless you give it to me under MIT licenses or something that where it allows these people who are going to run off with your, you know, your tools are the foundation of the innovation, but then their, their IP builds on it. I don't want your lawyers chasing them once they invent this IP. They need to have a slice of the pie. They, their enthusiasm has to be fired. They need to be able to then run with it. Besides, they are far more competent to run into new markets with it than you are. So I don't want you to frame them, right? So those who had their licenses too stiff and they didn't want to relax them, I said, sorry guys, no, you can't be part of this space. But I was lucky that some of these companies were, even like the big research organization like Fraunhofer, the biggest one in, in Europe by far, German national research organization, relaxed their licenses during this pilot because they saw the benefit of the knowledge that this exchange was created. So all of the innovations that were being created with their tools were a phenomenal testbed for them and they were actually able to run off and write papers off the back of it. So this is the sort of, uh, this is when you create this um, a wonderful ecosystem where each stakeholder has uh, the ability to create value within their own context. They can, they can go away with taking something that's meaningful to them. And this is super important about our space. And it speaks, too, to the importance of making collaboration happen via dispelling the notion that, you know, there's a one sole author or owner of a given idea, right, that you need to open it up. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's interesting you should mention that because actually this has become a paradigm that's now grown and it's actually now really very much at high level. So... Right from the early stages, and I must say that it started for me in design education. So what happened was in around 2010, I was helping Goldsmiths establish design entrepreneurship as a course. And I was speaking with all of these uh, mature uh, designers, um, experienced designers who were doing this design entrepreneurship course because they wanted to take a leap into entrepreneurship um, which wasn't really drilled into them with their design education, and uh, people tend to come out of you know people tended to come out of design education slightly kind of fumbling in terms of business and how they conduct their business because they never had any experience on that front. So so people tend to meander a little bit, and some are more talented than others. And so this course existed because there was this element that was really needed, and mature people really needed it. They really wanted to boost their design business. And so we started talking about how the tools of production have changed and how in the three-dimensional space now, you can of course create completely unique one-offs that are very cheap pr to produce. 
And of course, you know, this is 2010, 3D printing and all the rest of it is kind of really coming to the fore. And I said, well, hang on a minute, I mean, this should definitely work the same way as open source or creative commons or designed by attribution. We started talking designed by attribution. I went, okay, wait, we need to do open product licenses. So. It went, I went through a process, uh, I got put in touch with the most, the guy who was basically declared by the Financial Times the most innovative lawyer in London. And I went to him and said, do you want to be the next Lawrence Lessig? Because I mean, I'm developing this thing called open product licenses. And then I got in touch with the guys from CERN who had open hardware licenses and we said, how about we build on top of your licenses? And they went, you have our complete endorsement, go ahead, go for it. So this stuff exists, right? It's uh, actually probably now the time when the landscape is mature enough for us to be able to use open product licenses in the 3D space. At the time, for instance, what we had to do is have discussions such as, well, basically, <laughs> we, we were inviting other lawyers for a beer with my newfound best friend, the most innovative lawyer in London. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to invite my friend that was on Nokia versus Interdigital. And we're going to quiz him on how do we transpose this space of copyright, which is effectively linked to documented files, so digital files, to a 3D space. Because let's face it, you can just take a Charles and Ray Eames chair, you can hack the legs off, you can hack into it and put other legs on and nobody is going to blink an eyelid because that's not what's protected. What's protected is the tools of production that produce the chair in the first place. This is what's patented and the chair itself is not patented. The blueprint is patented, right? So it's a completely different legal space from a Photoshop file where if you were to hack into it, of course you are disrupting someone else's copyright and it's very clear. So, what do you do? Well, first of all, why should you create rules in a space that doesn't have them? Because it allows creativity and you should just allow people to hack, right? Well, yes, you should, except that as the space evolves with data tracking and IoT, well, it will be clamped down by proprietors. It's happened before. It's happened with typefaces. We've experienced it already. I saw that happen. I saw it happen in front of my eyes, you know, sort of overnight. We, we let slip of that sort of field. We couldn't make it a communal field and, and it, it kind of went into proprietary and, and copywritten sort of works. So in the 3D space, what we should do is set the parameters for ways in we, which we wish to create, which is let's enable it so that we can hack into it, but we do it in the same way as you develop co open source code. So you can actually create attributions, you can create licenses, you can create a product that's never your Platonian archetype because it's never finished. Let's turn it on its head. A product starts its life when it's released into the public domain. And when it's released into the public domain, it starts a narrative. And this narrative can evolve in all kinds of directions and everybody who adds to the narrative can, can add their own stamp on it. This is early days, you know. And we were very, very lucky. I mean, I was lucky because I kind of sat down at one point because we were doing so much work. I sort of said, oh, I'm, I'm going to apply to Innovate UK for some, some help and support because, you know, we are, we are doing all this work voluntarily. And, and I was very lucky that the evaluators saw the, in fact, they, what they wrote was, you are preempting a time to come, and we are really willing to support that. Uh, you are setting the rules for, for things that are, usually people are reactive in these environments. So, 
And so they gave us support and we ended up with open product licenses. I, I talk a lot about this because it came out of the design space. It came out of designers demanding this. And that's because, of course, designers work very close to emerging markets. Now, to, just to show you the scale of importance of what happened with these designers having this, planting the seeds and me reacting to it with an enabling mechanism. Over the years, we ended up taking it to, through our labs and through our pilots, not only through this kind of idea of we will track MIT licenses and then we will build the innovation IP on top. So we said, okay, what we are doing is we're taking background intellectual property and research intellectual property, and then we will put something new called the innovation intellectual property on top of that. So we're starting to build a stack. So we went, okay, here's an IP stack. And then we said, okay, let's test it in decentralized systems. So then we did this thing where we tested registration of intellectual property as it was created in real time. And people said, it won't, you won't be able to see where one stops and the other one starts. And actually we proved them wrong because it was very, very clear. So you bring stuff on board that's, that's kind of from, from technology providers or people who have brought tools. And then you have our community and suddenly, you know, when someone comes up with a brilliant idea that sits on top of this, that can build on top of this, it's very clear to everyone in a room. And they can register their layer. But what's really, what was really interesting about this is people said, well, as soon as this person comes up with this brilliant thing, the guys uh, from the, you know, the big guys are going to get their lawyers in and they're going to basically grab it. And what actually happened was, again, a complete surprise. What happened was that when the idea is incredibly useful and really very good, all of a sudden it has a market. And that market can be a big guy. And this big guy suddenly says, well, you know what? We will buy X amount of this from you. You can now go back and negotiate the components. So suddenly you have a power as an inventor, as a designer, to go back to the big guys who provided the original tech and say, okay, guys, if you now don't give me a good price on this, I'm going to go to someone else. And suddenly you've changed the game, right? So this is what happened, and so this system now is being scaled at European level through the European Commission, because they've asked me to basically propose a system particularly for the Innovation Council, and it's already got approval that we will test it, and we will actually try and build it on a grand scale so that it includes all of the research results that have been created all the, um, and all of the innovation results, and um, we're going to start to see how we can build these combinations of IP and make it available and create the standards for the data that would describe it. Because we need to kind of treat it a bit like with a music file, you know? You need to be able to make it findable. So then that allows for sort of a tracking situation in which once someone finds it to be winning, you know, thing that they want to bring to market, then you can track back to all the individual contributors and they can kind of reap their benefits. That's correct, yes. Um, not only that, in data-driven systems, when you start to register everything in data, what you're able to do is model scenarios. Once you start to agree on ways to codify data, let's just say an example. You have uh, someone with material libraries and you have data about each individual materials, and then you have someone with uh, potential use case scenarios. And let's say you combine two data sets, one from each side. 
So let's say they're coming from two completely different domains. One is coming from materials modeling, one is coming from, uh, let's say, some kind of industrial application. You will end up in modeling with a third data set. And that data set could give you an insight into the potential. And that data set is also significant to the original providers. Because all of a sudden they can make an informed decision of whether they want to invest further into this area. So you could have a, an inventor who has, uh, or an innovator or designer, who has opened up potentially a new market. But without the traditional marketing budget and sort of stabbing in the dark the way that large organizations often have to do. So it's actually quite a game changer. Michaela Magas has had an incredibly non-linear career path. Increasingly, this is the case, especially for younger generations. Michaela sees non-linearity as not a passing trend, but an essential way forward. As she has written, there are things I want to create or make possible in the world that simply cannot be achieved in the context of conventional employment. As Michaela says, linearity had its place in time. We were part of a 20th century system of industrialization, and through the set of affordances that were in front of us, some of these linear paths were incredibly useful at the time. So people's linear careers where you train for one particular type of specialization and then you sit in one job for most of your life, that was useful at that time. You know, it made the system work. It isn't anymore. <laughs> you know, the system, system is changing. We are redesigning systems for a reason. We are not redesigning systems because we want to be revolutionaries, because the, our affordances have changed. And uh, it is very, very clear that the set of skills that are required, you know, they're sort of the, the kind of cognitive sk skills that are not repetitive. There are cognitive skills that, that have to be able to cope with uh, unknown unknowns and surprising scenarios and, and uh, that are inventive or they have methodologies and approaches which can question subject matter from different perspectives. So that means that people need to accumulate ranges of experiences which allow them to think in that way and that don't develop the brain. You know, I, I always say, you know, sort of, if you're working so many hours per day, you are evolving your brain depending on what work you're doing, your, your brain is creating sort of connections and synapses. You're training yourself all day long. So, you know, if you are in a repetitive occupation, you're going to be brilliant at that one thing and your brain has evolved in that way. But it's incredibly difficult for people to then snap out of that because uh, they simply have to retrain themselves to get out of it. And, and this has literally been the case. You know, when people change jobs in the 20th century, they would have to retrain. Now what we do is we, we, we encourage education that opens up as many perspectives as possible. And design education in particular has phenomenal tools for that. The way you, I'm sure you, the way you train your students is, is to actually ask them to look at the broader context and, and actually look at the subject matter from different perspectives and try and address it from as many perspectives as possible. And whilst that may have looked terribly chaotic back in the day, you know, so this is why kind of I would say so scientists would say, well, the artists just appear so chaotic in their, in their approach. It is actually, if you do it rigorously, it's a real skill and it's a very, very useful skill. And so with frontier technologies, like we have people here in the lab working with neural nets. They're currently feeding, uh, feeding uh, European Space Agency data to the neural nets. The sort of amount of data that's coming out, there's probably so much of it 
you're always maxing it out on processing. You can't parse it in time to actually identify salient uh, moments. So what you have to do is be very creative in the way that you identify the important bits. And there are different kinds of visualization or different kind of creative methods that are used in that. These are the kinds of things you can't design unless you're trained to really address the problem head-on with in many, as many creative ways as possible, really. I mean, it's a, it's a great skill to have. It's a skill that all of the scientists are really grateful for right now. For instance, designers and visual people and artists can bring, bring to the table. So I am not surprised that, uh, you know, uh, creatives are experimenting, they're, they're taking different paths, they're, they're going through different, they're allowing themselves to have multiple experiences and build that sort of knowledge of tackling completely new territories because it equips them with the tools um, that these new scenarios and new landscapes as they are evolving require. So in your concept paper for the new European Bauhaus, you talk about, you kind of give a bit of an origin story, right? Talking about your dad and his, his career a bit in architecture. And you talk about growing up in communist Yugoslavia among these great Bauhaus works. So I have a couple of questions that, that connect to this. And one is around how your father or that generation used design in connection with technology and engineering and how we use it today. And the other is around how the Bauhaus was seen and used at that time and how maybe this dream of democratizing design is potentially become more real today. So those are just a couple different ways in and feel free to start wherever you'd like. <laughs> sure. So yes, I was brought up by architect parents. My mother is 78 and she's still practicing architect and she's working on projects right now and she's going to be, you know, she's kind of Oscar Niemeyer style, you know, she'll be there right till the last moment designing. My father unfortunately passed away in 2013 as the Secretary of the Academy of the Arts at the time, and before that he was for many, many, very many years a Professor of Theory of Architecture, so he held the seat in the University of Zagreb. But uh, he's also the author of several buildings that are at MoMA uh, in New York. Um, there were five of his projects that were ended, ended up at the Concrete Utopia exhibition, still now in their catalogue. And um, uh, that was uh, unfortunately posthumously. I wish my father could have been there to see it. And of course, he was battling the system throughout his life because he didn't want to be political, which is it's kind of weird that I ended up in politics because my father never wanted to be political. So, And that was actually very difficult uh, in those days because, as you mentioned, we were in communist Yugoslavia where you were required to be political. Every single individual was required to be political. Um, so my father managed to get, have his uh, 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 buildings miraculously built through anonymous competitions. And I was very much part of it. Uh, we were a cottage industry in our apartment. Uh, we were in a beautiful apartment that my father had designed. So he was asked by a local group of politicians who had the privilege to ask for a for an architect to design their block of apartments. He was asked to design the, the the block, and he said, "Well, I'm on the queuing list for an apartment. Can I also have one, please?" And so basically, we ended up living in my father father's design. And so it was, it was a lovely apartment, not too big. We were, we were not allowed to have them too big, but it was completely plastered with drawings, like uh, architectural drawings. You, you had to hop between them. 
I, I remember growing up not knowing what food meal, uh, food times were, like meal times, you know, um, because it, it just simply, you know, that didn't exist. Like if you were hungry, you just grabbed something to eat, but actually the whole time what you were doing was working. And so as a kid, I was written into their projects, and this has been confirmed as documentation, um, at the age of 10, right? <laughs> so I was brought up on this stuff. So the influence on me has been tremendous. I was, I was included in the projects on technical descriptions of architectural projects and my parents would, uh, I suppose that wasn't exactly above board, they would take me out of school for a week when there were competitions so that I could help and so that we could make the deadline. And uh, we were very lucky that, that uh, we won, well, my parents won, my father won, but, but, but we won uh, also uh, the competitions that I participated in. And those buildings uh, have been built and currently two of them are uh, listed as national heritage. Uh, Museum of Revolution in Sarajevo, which is supported by the Guggenheim Foundation. And also uh, the stadium uh, in Split in Croatia, the, the Hajduk Stadium that was built for the Mediterranean Games and that was pretty revolutionary. So when you ask about how my father used uh, the technology, one thing that is probably important to mention is that he comes from uh, the area of Europe that educates architects as also engineers. So you have to be good at physics and maths and you have to literally, as, as an architect, you have to straddle sev several disciplines. And so that's already a transdisciplinary job, really, as an, I know, qualification. And the reason why he was able to innovate with technology is because he was able to calculate it. He was able to actually say, this is possible. And I sort of continued on that tradition, to be honest, because I mean, when I graduated as designer, designers were not programmers. They weren't trained in programming, and yet I decided to learn to code myself. Now there are many people who do that anyway, but at the time that wasn't the norm. So, when my father looked at um, innovating with technologies, it was both conceptually, because he wanted to execute on, on a concept, for instance, with the, with the stadium that was hugely innovative. It, it had, I think it held for 10 years the record for the largest unsupported arc. It was by trying to solve a problem of how to make the whole of the audience inside a stadium have the experience of a, Rome, uh, of, a, of a Greek amphitheater where you don't have any pillars in front of you that obscure your view, where you can have this unified acoustic experience. Every single spectator can have a, a fantastic experience out of it. And also at the same time can see the natural elements around them, see the sky, see the sort of um, landmark, the, the main landmark in that city is a, is a famous um, a mountain that has songs written about it called Marian, and on the other side, of course, the other landmark is the sea. So he had the vision of what this should be, and he wanted to execute on it, and then he addressed it from the technological point of view. It was, at that time, technology was evolving with the first so-called supercomputers, um, that some very progressive companies were, were employing, and this was uh, the German, a German company called Mero that invented this sort of atomic structure components that you could construct roofs with. But they had only tested, they had tested it on hang, they were using it on hangars, and they, were, they had only done a straight section of the roof of the stadium in Berlin at that point. And my father said, well, actually, I know how to calculate an arc from this and I can actually do a self-supporting 
very, very large span roof out of this. So my father didn't have a computer. He was doing it manually when he said that. And then in fact, when he spoke to the engineer on the job, the engineer said, no, 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 you can't do that. And he said, yes, you can. And so they ended up with this kind of discussion, yes, you can. So this, I think, to me, spoke of someone who was, well, my father was hugely into philosophy, so I was brought up on Bergson and stuff like that. And, and, and every time I would come back from school, I was, I was massively curious. I would say, Dad, you know, uh, there was this thing mentioned at school. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit? And he would, like, go up and grab Larousse, the French encyclopedia, and start reading to me from it. So I was very, very lucky to be growing up, you know, because of my, my fondness of, of, of architecture and design and, and, and creativity and, and engineering and all these things. I was very lucky to be growing up in that environment, really, um, and have practice as part of my schooling, effectively. So, um, yes, the technology was embedded and this cross-disciplinary approach was embedded right from my childhood. But at the same time, when you start to talk about the Bauhaus, of course, I was, my father was already reacting to the Bauhaus aesthetic um, and bringing into it some vernacular elements from our region. So some of his style is um, now uh, recognized as being unique because it brought kind of unique postmodernist style for that region. Uh, so he reacted against the sort of the language of the Bauhaus, which was very, very, very set in its ways, the language of the Bauhaus, right? We'd recognize, this is why it's so recognizable. But, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't go outside of it. And this was kind of the problem with, with modernism. And I think we have moved into a completely different direction uh, as far as that's concerned, because we, in the new European Bauhaus advocate for multiple types of aesthetic. And they can, they, they can come from various types of global communities, not just European aesthetic, not just different European regions, but different global regions. Uh, you know, our sense of aesthetic can come from a sense of community. It can come from very different starting points rather than sort of the methods of production or industrial production or particular types of materials. So there are huge differences on that front. There's also then the discourse about inclusion. So if, you, if you're talking about inclusion, of course you have to broaden your sense of aesthetic. You can compare the ambition, you know, this idea of leapfrogging ahead with new, new means and new ways of doing things, and also the, the quest for invention, creating innovative solutions and genial kind of design solutions. All of that still stands, but I think there are certain other things that have moved and opened up a great deal more to the original Bauhaus. So to think about that a little bit, which you've written about too, it's that, to and, and thinking about, you know, your, your father's contributions, which are maybe more able to be seen or concrete than maybe the contributions of, of much of the design that we talk about today, or even that people are working on at MTF today. You have said it's not our objects or lifestyle that are in urgent need of design or redesign anymore. It's the institutions and the processes. So I think telling a story like you did about your father and his contributions and someone can see a stadium and they can see and there's awe surrounding that and there's there's a real sense of like accomplishment surrounding that, right? When we get to designing or redesigning our institutions and our processes, those are much harder to wrap your head around because they're not so visible, but they are touching us at every single moment of every single day. 
And I think this is a little bit of, you know, what the new European Bauhaus is trying to to do is to say we can use these design notions or this Bauhaus thinking to really take a fresh look at at how we live at, at these institutions, at these processes. So I wonder what you think about that, how how you make people sort of understand the value of rethinking those institutions and processes and and being ready for the shifts in structures that underpin their everyday lives. How do you tell stories about that and how do you um, make it real for people? What's interesting is when you started, uh, you know, started on this train of thought, I, I actually, first thing that came to mind, because we were still, of course, mentioning my dad, the first thing that came to mind was a conversation I had with him I was, I think, very, very young, and, and Richard Rogers had just done the Lloyds building in London, and I was enthusiastically telling Dad about this kind of idea that turned architecture on his head that basically exposed the guts of a building, the services on the outside of the building, and how cool that was. And my father said, yes, it is, and so it's a new language has been created through that. However, you, what you have to think about is what happens to those pipes when, for instance, we don't use gas for heating anymore? And then, and then it's like, what does it become then? Uh, does it become a monument? Does it become a, a language, a, a sign of its times? Does it become an aesthetic? What is it? So even these solid structures evolve, and perhaps there are some elements that were totally rational at the time, and there was a reason why the aesthetic was the way it was, becomes more of a sign of its times and the use and appropriation, and then we reframe them and rethink them and we reuse them in new ways. So nothing is, is as static as, I mean, you know, we still have the pyramids and they were used for a particular purpose, you know. All of these things are wonderful, but in, in truth, there are, there are a great deal more similarities between architecture and system design as we, as we use it today. This system design that's now addressing all of the different ways of interaction, you know, the way that, that we interact in bureaucracies, in governments, in, and in industry, across industry, in sort of across services and consumers, etc. The similarity between information architecture and, and, and traditional architecture, I think it's very clear to a lot of designers and it has been clear for a while. And system design has a great deal to do with, with architecture. And so, for instance, you know, me having spent most of my childhood sort of staring at plans and looking at the flow of, uh, in public buildings of how services are delivered or how people move through them is not that far from the way that we need to think about how we interact today, both in terms of services and people. So there are a great deal more similarities and what we are developing now is also something that is going to need adjustment and, and further sort of evolution. Uh, what has of course changed or what has evolved are the sets of affordances that we have today and, and sort of the tools that we have at our disposal. It's, a, it's surprising how much we are still set in this sort of static space. And uh, I will give you an example. Um, when sort of 10, 15 years ago, we started approaching sort of the idea of the web as uh, something that delivers information. And we wanted to make sure people had da good download speeds. And then it was already sort of, um, you know, 10 years ago or so that we were saying, well, hang on a minute, I think what's more important is the upload speeds. Because <laughs> what this space is really about is about creation. It's about co-creation or creation or it's a place for creativity and for creating content and, and it's not about delivery of information as it was originally intended. 
Now, that's very, very obvious now, and it's kind of an old story, but if you actually think about what's happening in our cities currently, we're still delivering services as the primary thing. And nobody is, has actually taken the leap to consider that now the, the connectivity exists in all of the spaces in between the nodes and synapses and in between the sort of the delivery of the individual kind of data points. It exists in all of the spaces where culture thrives. And we haven't flipped it yet to the point where the grassroots communities on the ground, the, the, the people who interact in these environments, are the main drivers of this space. So I'm kind of, for instance, really advocating for, for the era of, and not just kind of an odd project, but sort of like really the era of like citizens as, as the creators of their environments and, and to flip the city from service-oriented to upload, to kind of really capitalize on the grassroots community's innovation that happens on the ground. And we have all of the tools and all of the systems in place to be able to do that, but we just haven't shifted our mentality towards that. So, I, I, you know, when, when we were doing the Innovation 7, which is a, we got invited to contribute to the G7 leaders, we were asked questions such as, how do we, as, as a, sort of a leader of a government, uh, establish a sort of a relationship with our citizens through digital technologies? My thing was, well, actually, all of your cultural heritage buildings, all of your public buildings, all your, your bicycle sharing schemes are your interface with your citizens in real tangible space. This is your frontier, this is where you should be. And this is how those stories come across to, to the politicians, you know, by opening the possibilities for them to visualize how this could look. And then they take it forward into missions and into mechanisms. This is about changing the sort of mental models. How do you define design? Oh my goodness. Right, just, I'll just end on a really easy one. <laughs> How do I define design? So I would definitely not, uh, I, I mean, I, okay, there's going to have to be a narrative to this uh, and a bit of philosophy, <laughs> sorry. So design has gone through different stages of sort of approaches and already sort of in the 90s, you know, we were going past the sort of Platonian archetype. So, you know, there's this kind of whole, Heil, Eidos, Telos, Logos, the Heidegger thing of like, how do you do form and how do you identify the function and how do you identify the loci, the, the, the location of a, with the context. And then of course in the, in the you know, last century we were kind of going on about the context. Context was king, which it is and it's great. And this was kind of part of my, you know, Royal College of Art education. And then, of course, already in the 90s, there was a really strong movement towards sustainability. So it was what you would now call in industry the product life cycle. So it's like, okay, it's not just you're aiming towards your Platonian urn or a Heideggerian urn or whatever it is like the, that is never going to be perfect, but you're, you know, this is the ultimate form, etc. You're actually looking at what's going to happen to this product further down the line. This is, of course, the use case of a product and design is about a great deal more than just products. But let's just talk about that for a minute because it does actually continue this line of thought. 
when you when you look at the product past its uh, release point, so it wasn't just the point of creation that mattered. Now the consideration was what happens to this product and how is it used, reappropriated, and particularly disposed of in terms of sustainability. Thoughts about that evolved already in the 90s in the design communities. What then happened was, I think, uh, when we looked at the life cycle of, of something, uh, it turned out that the product had multiple narratives because this life cycle could manifest itself in various different ways. And I just remember distinctly the point at which kind of like, you know, I declared, I think it was 2008 or something, I said, okay, product is a platform. We're going to think of it in this way. We're going to say, okay, the moment it releases itself into the public imagination or into into the public realm is going to start to have very different shapes. And of course, this is going in line with the affordances. This paradigm of multiple potential destinies of a piece of design has then totally chimed with our kind of collaborative environments and us building on, on each other's knowledge or in each other's creativity. It has also turned on its head the idea of this kind of star designer, the sole author. And so the design as an approach has shifted in both in terms of the agency of the designer and how the designer fits within this whole sort of chain of, or rather a network of, of different contributions. But also the possibility of design to straddle fields. So it used to be a service more than anything, and it used to be that you serviced other domains. But what it now seems to be able to do is it's reframed within this new connected landscape, particularly now that we're doing the industry commons, where we are connecting all the different domains in, of industry. I find this role very much central so whilst it sort of relies on, on multiple like authors and agencies, at the same time, it also has a very, very sort of a, a simultaneous reach across different disciplines. And it's very central with its methodologies and its approaches in terms of being a connector. Um, and so the way that I then redefine design is within this context of like the way that we, we see this lab here, which is that there are people in, coming into this lab from all these different disciplines and the methodologies that we put at the center, the design methodologies, design and creative and art methodologies, it's not unique to design but it's certainly very strong with design. They are acting as the focal point, the thing that is an enabler, the thing that brings people together. And this is where also then the design from this central role, central position can also have a good overview of the whole system around it and can start to infer both connections and further sort of enabling mechanisms, which is all very much part of how we consider system design, as well as to consider the ethical, the moral, the sustainability questions, the sort of responsible, like responsible AI questions, and all of the layers that we build this upon. So it was always the duty of design to consider these aspects and it is framed at different, at di different times in different ways, like you mentioned with the Bauhaus. But now that we're building these connected systems, what happens is what these systems are based upon and what are the parameters that they sit upon and this is something that design needs to kind of establish as an anchor. So that whatever we build is built on ethics, responsible AI, sustainability parameters, all of the sort of uh, social agreements and social values. So 
I'm reframing it as being very central, as you can kind of gather. Thank you to Michaela Magas for joining me today. You can learn more about Michaela and her many projects at MichaelaMagas.com. Links to her website and related articles are available on the IIT Institute of Design website, id.iit.edu slash podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review with intent on your favorite service. This is a new show and we'd love your support. Our theme music comes from ID alum Aditya Ravi. Until next time. <laughs>